I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Greg Lambrecht, the founder of Coravin, a company that produces a device that allows wine enthusiasts to access wine without removing the cork. So if you want just a glass or two from a bottle, the Coravin extracts just a portion of the wine and replaces it with argon gas. Greg is also the founder of Intrinsic Therapeutics, a medical device company focused on spinal disorders. Greg is a graduate of MIT, and he has degrees in nuclear and mechanical engineering. Welcome. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. How does the Coravin work? So the Coravin is a simple handheld system about the size of a rabbit cork pole. Um, it works by uh, passing a thin needle, a uh, non-coring needle that actually was originally developed for medical purposes, uh, through the cork. Uh, then you push a trigger. Uh, argon gas inflates the bottle, essentially. It increases the pressure on the inside of the bottle. When you let go of the trigger, that pressure uh, pushes the wine uh, through the needle and out of the spout and into your glass. You pull the needle out of the cork, and the cork, because of its elasticity, reseals. Uh, the key for us, really, is that we take advantage of the cork's natural elasticity to allow it to continue doing its preservation job. Mm -hmm. uh, we just found out a, a way to get the wine out of the bottle without removing it. Okay, so show me this. Uh, where is the argon? Is that the this capsule. here? The yeah, capsule. the capsule actually goes in here. Okay, um, so, so there's one in there now? That's right. You can always tell by pushing the button, you hear that that's okay. the uh, argon gas coming out. How small is the needle? It's a little bit over a millimeter. It's a 17-gauge needle, and it's actually a medical-grade uh, needle. It looks bigger than I was expecting. Oh, yeah. You know, the cork is really the most elastic natural material, uh, the structural material we've ever found. Uh, and really what I did was take advantage of its uh, elasticity uh, to be able to get a reasonably large gauge needle through it uh, to pour wine as quickly as possible. What is the history of the cork in wine? That's uh, a good question. I read about it only after I developed Coravin, but uh, the cork is really the best tested wine preservation system uh, that we've got. Uh, wine's been around for about 8,000 years as far as we know. It started in Iran or the Caucasus uh, and spread its way like all good things across the planet. Uh, cork in glass is an argument between the French and the English, uh, as there frequently is. Uh, but the best records show that it was developed by a guy who manufactured glass bottles in England in the 1600s. Uh, and he just decided that if, I used, if he used cork in glass that he could seal wine and better preserve it. Uh, the biggest problem with wine was that it would oxidize over time. Uh, you couldn't preserve the flavors uh, of it for very long at all, so it was drunk quite young. Um, once he developed that system of cork and glass, uh, people have been enjoying wine over decades uh, since. What is cork made out of? Cork is a, it's a biologic plant-like material, uh, and it's got a really remarkable cellular structure where uh, the cells uh, encapsulate a little bit of air. Uh, but it's completely contained. They're really, really small, and there's lots of them. Uh, and that air and that structure allows it to be compressed uh, actually upwards of 90%, and it'll recover uh, the vast majority of its size. So it's been great for sealing things for a long time. The traditional cork is being replaced uh, by other closures over the last decade or so. Why is that shift happening? Well, there was a terrible tragedy that happened. Most cork is made in Portugal. Um, and by the Amaral family, I think. It goes way, way back. It's a beautiful tradition. Uh, Portugal went through some political troubles and economic troubles in the 70s and 80s, uh, and the Amaral family really was sort of kicked out, and the, the not the vineyards, but the farms were taken over, 
uh, by people who really didn't know what they were doing. Uh, so they had bad storage practices. They had bad treatment practices that wound up producing subquality, subpar cork uh, that wound up being shipped all over the planet, and in particular, south of the equator. So the Australians, uh, the South Americans, and even some of the Americans in the 1980s were getting really poor quality cork that either resulted in early oxidation of their wine or the transfer of this really foul chemical called TCA. Um, and so with those failures, the French and actually then the Australians developed the screw top, uh, which is the most broadly used alternative closure. And do the Portuguese, uh, are they back in action with providing cork to the global market? They absolutely are. And they have cleaned up their act dramatically. And the, the, the uh, incidence of things like premature oxidation and tainting cork taint, which is TCA, um, has dropped uh, dramatically. I think when somebody comes out with a competitive closure that starts taking over, you respond. Why does Portugal have a monopoly over the cork supply? Um, trees live for a hundred plus years. They take a long time to develop and they like to grow in certain areas. So, uh, Portugal is the number one Spain and France. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a very European product as I think it has been for thousands of years. If the cork has this elasticity, why has it been so challenging to create a device uh, such as the Coravin to preserve wine in the past or up until now? I, I've always felt that, um, the most challenging thing in developing a new product is identifying the unmet need you're trying to address. Uh, I've always felt that once you've really captured the need in a unique way, the product itself sort of falls into your hands. Uh, and I think what's been the assumption uh, throughout history since the 1600s was that in order to drink a glass of wine, you need to remove the cork. Uh, and I think the fundamental step that I took uh, when I invented this device was saying, no, I don't actually need to remove the cork. Did you have sort of this epiphany moment where you're like, wait, actually, let me go about this a different way? I'd worked on uh, my first medical product was a needle product, uh, one for J&J &J and then another one for Pfizer. Uh, so I had become really good at needles over the course of uh, a few years. Uh, and I remember literally standing in my house with a needle in my hand and a bottle of wine in my other and thinking, there's got to be a way that I can get this wine out of this bottle without pulling that cork using this needle. And um, uh, I think the, the rest was quite easy. And you had the coincidence of your wife being pregnant in 1999 when you came up with the idea so that uh, you were basically alone drinking wine and you wanted to find a way to preserve the wine. Now, that's the anecdote. Is that just coincidence? It always, it always sounds so tragic. You're drinking alone. Um, yeah, it was the driver, certainly. My wife was pregnant. We always used to enjoy wine together. And actually, her taste has permanently changed as a result of her pregnancy, which is not uncommon. Mm. Um, and there were, I think at first it was, look, I want to be able to drink a glass and not commit to the whole bottle. Uh, but then I realized, you know, what I really want and what's missing is a way that I can drink however much wine from any of my bottles at any time mm -hmm. without having any compromise in the quality of the remaining wine. By the way, uh, you said your, wi your wife's taste, her name is Lee, has changed since pr her pregnancies. How so? I, you know, uh, there are some good things and bad things about pregnancy. It's remarkable the, the vast impact that it can have on a woman's body in all sorts of uh, unpredictable ways. Uh, and the sort of benign one that happened to my wife, she became super sensitive to smells and tastes. She's very good at picking up oxidation. She's been great in part of my testing as I developed Coravin to see whether or not wines had changed. Uh, but she really has lost a taste for strong flavored things like broccoli or truffles or wine uh, of any kind. She's still a great wine detector taster. <laughs> so even decades after having children. Yeah. 
I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Greg Lambrecht, co-founder of Coravin, a company that produces a device that allows people to access wine without removing the cork. This allows a person to drink one or two glasses without compromising the remaining wine in the bottle. You use argon as the gas uh, to prevent oxidation. And argon is a noble gas. It's an element. It's inert. And the Greek word means literally lazy. <laughs> yeah. And it is a lazy gas, I guess. It doesn't, or it's an, it's a, an antisocial gas. Mm. Uh, it doesn't want to play with anybody. Uh, mm. It doesn't bond to anything. Uh, I actually experimented with a variety of different gases uh, over the 10 years it took me from the time I came up with the idea until starting the company. Uh, I wanted to see which, wine, which gas had the least impact on wine over time. For me, the ultimate was if a professional couldn't tell the difference between a wine that had been accessed, I'd poured a couple of glasses out of the bottle years ago, maybe a decade ago, mm -hmm. and one that had been untouched. Yeah. Uh, so argon uh, very quickly rose to the top along with a few other gases. Uh, and I really wasn't able to tell the difference as has been demonstrated by a lot of people that have tried. Now, argon uh, is heavier than oxygen, so it forms a blanket over the wine. Is, is that right? That's right. It's, uh, it's about 1% of the air we breathe, um, but it is heavier than air. Uh, and that gives it some really tremendous advantages, uh, both for the Coravin and actually it's a commonly used gas in the wine industry during the bottling process. I've heard the Coravin uh, described as a mosquito. And for people who want to picture how the Coravin works, uh, just as a, a, a mosquito extracts blood using a needle, so too does the Coravin extract wine. You had mosquito in the initial name, correct? <laughs> that three-year-old older son of mine uh, gave it a very sticky name literally from the start, uh, wine mosquito. Uh, we dropped it because mosquitoes have also been responsible for malaria and you know, millions of dead. So we, uh, we've dropped it from, uh, from our lexicon. But it was the name of the product between 2000 and 2011 when it was really just my, my device at home. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Greg Lambrecht, co-founder of Coravin, a company that produces a device that allows people to access wine without removing the cork. This allows a person to drink one or two glasses without compromising the remaining wine in the bottle. You started Coravin uh, from a, a personal need. Um, had you always been interested in wine? Uh, I grew up in Southern California, uh, probably had my first wine at a reasonably illegal age. Um, so there's a wine culture in California, um, and I, I'd always liked it and been interested. Uh, I was introduced to one of the first most shocking wines that I'd had. It was an Hermitage from uh, France, a red wine, uh, and it, it, it didn't taste anything like a grape. Uh, it tasted like pepper and meat and all these strange things. And I thought, you know, how did this happen? Uh, and I think that's one of the pleasures of wine is the exploration of how uh, a single grape uh, in different regions made by different people can in one place taste like uh, uh, blueberries and strawberries in Australia, taste like red meat in uh, France and, and uh, be a spectacular uh, drink in, in California with totally different characteristics. And while you were a wine enthusiast, you are and were primarily a medical device inventor. At what point did you say, you know what, uh, I'm going to take this invention of mine seriously? I'd been making them for my own use for a while. And then uh, one of my friends saw it, uh, he's now one of my co-founders, and said, you know, can I have one of those? Uh, so I made him one that I had a very good friend, one of my investors uh, in Intrinsic, 
Um, he became, he got married and as a wedding gift, I made him one. Mm. And then people that they knew saw it and started asking for it. So I started making, I don't know, a dozen a month, uh, and realized, Hey, wait a minute. It's not just me who has this problem. There's a lot of people who have the same interest to try a variety of different wines and not have to commit to any of the bottles. And this invention was marinating for, you know, over a decade. You're, uh, you first thought of the idea in 1999, yep. but it wasn't until 2003 that you developed your first prototype. And by the way, 23, 24 prototypes later, we now have a Coravin. <laughs> you know, uh, I'm a perfectionist. It's probably, it helps you in medicine because uh, you never want to have a failure if you can help it. Uh, it I am a scientist at heart. I want to make sure that it worked perfectly. And it was a side hobby, but it got to a point where I realized, you know, I've touched on something that people are passionate about, which is what really gets me going. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Greg Lambrecht, founder of Coravin. We'll hear more from Greg coming up. Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Greg Lambrecht, the founder of Coravin, a company that produces a device that allows wine enthusiasts to access wine without removing the cork. So if you want just a glass or two from a bottle, the Coravin extracts just a portion of the wine and replaces it with argon gas. Greg is also the founder of Intrinsic Therapeutics, a medical device company focused on spinal disorders. Greg is a graduate of MIT, and he has degrees in nuclear and mechanical engineering. When you say that you gave the Coravin as gifts, I mean, this, I'm looking at it, it it's intricate. It's made of metal, and it's um, really solid. I mean, did you, is it made in China? or? Yeah, it's or? so great. I think if you look at something and it looks beautiful, now this is how much the world has changed. You think it must be made in China uh, or Germany. <laughs> so uh, it's a sad truth, but or not, actually not a sad truth. They're both great places. I have a machine shop in my basement. Um, I'm an inventor, and so I like... Uh, to relax by making things. So I have been machining since I was in college. It's just something that's very peaceful for me, uh, designing and machining. Uh, So I made uh, them all in my basement. Uh, Using what? I mean, it's made of metal. Yeah. So I would cut it, uh, design it and cut it by hand. Uh, I probably would have been a watchmaker uh, a century ago. Um, I just love precision machining. Now I had the enormously good fortune of running into and being introduced to our current CEO uh, when I was looking for a board member, uh, Nick Lazaris, uh, who really took Keurig, the single-serve coffee-making company, from pre-revenue to its sale to Green Mountain and then the billions that it added to their valuation. Really spectacular guy. Um, this is a coffee-making machine, by yeah, the way. Yeah, the mm-hmm. Keurig single-serve coffee-maker. Um, Nick had relationships with a spectacular manufacturing partner in Hong Kong and China. Uh, without them, uh, Coravin would not have gotten to market. Another uh, key ally or person for you in this endeavor is Robert Parker, the wine critic. He basically has given it a wet kiss, which he <laughs> never does. The last time he did it was with Rydell Glasses, I believe. Yeah, uh, Renal from Austria. Um, I had the really good fortune of being introduced to him by one of our investors. Robert Parker is just what he appears. He is completely unbiased by uh, industry uh, and by me. And actually, he was when I was invited to see him by this friend, uh, I remember sitting down to dinner and he looked at me and he said, I just wanted to let you know, uh, I'm, I don't like gadgets. Uh, I don't think they work. 
Uh, I really don't understand what it is you're doing, but there's no way that this could possibly work. So I brought out a couple of bottles that I had been drinking, actually, that had been rated well by him. He is the one that I followed for a while to try to, and still do, to uh, really explore the wines of Hermitage and all these things that I loved. So uh, I poured him a glass of wine from a bottle that I'd accessed probably six, eight years ago. Uh, and as soon as he tasted it, he looked at me and said, you know, this is the biggest change I've seen in wine in the last 34 years. I think I had a permagrin for about uh, – I still do. He's, an, he's a spectacular guy. A permagrin. I like that. <laughs> so was was he just trying to be cheeky, you know, when he said, just want you to know I don't like devices? Or was he actually being, you know, factual when he sat down with you? He's a direct guy. Uh, and I think you need to be when you are in the wine rating world. It's a pretty hard-nosed world. You were introduced uh, to Robert Parker uh, by your uh, friend Jerry Facciani. Yep. How did you meet Jerry Facciani? Uh, Jerry came uh, to an investor meeting. I was trying to raise money, actually, for Corvin, our, our first big round here in New York. Jerry shows up at this meeting, and he starts helping me to set up for my uh, sales pitch to this investment fund. And I'm thinking, who is this guy? Since then, uh, and, I, and many people have told me the same thing, you meet Jerry Facciani and you fall in love with him right away. So he's just a stranger who came up to you at a conference and he liked the product and he just wanted to be helpful? He, exactly. And he uh, was close to Robert Parker and made the introduction by email and then uh, was there when we went to dinner saying, you know, Bob, you really need to see this. <laughs> we talk about key opinion leaders and Robert Parker, is that for you? Can you talk to me a little bit more about uh, key opinion leaders in the medical device world? Absolutely. Um, the medical device world is very complex. There are uh, regulatory, there's not only the human body and its pathology and the thing you're trying to solve uh, and the variability from person to person, but there's also the regulatory world. Then there's reimbursement. More and more uh, reimbursement is the number one challenge that a med tech company faces. Um, the people that many of the government regulatory agencies and payers turn to are uh, physicians uh, that are the heads of their societies uh, or have written extensively uh, on a topic that you're working on. Uh, and it's exceedingly important to go see those folks very early on in the process, perhaps involve them in your clinical trials, uh, so that they are aware of you. Uh, they know why you are trying to solve the problem, what problem you're solving, what you're good for, what you're not good for, so that when the agencies and the payers call them, um, they are informed. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you don't, uh, there can be a hostility. Why didn't you come see me? You know, why did you ignore me? So in uh, having a, the experience of making mistakes in the med tech world, I brought that same philosophy of going to the key opinion leaders in the wine world first before we launched. And that was the top sommeliers in New York and San Francisco, uh, the top wine producers in California, uh, the top wine raters, uh, both here in the United States, Wine Spectator, Robert Parker. Uh, also over in Europe, Jancis Robinson had the tremendous pleasure of meeting her. Uh, these are all really good people that have worked their way into positions of authority and trust. So you benefited by getting the attention of these people early on, even before the ultimate development of whether it's a, a medical device product or the Coravin. Yeah, I would do it in every company that I start. It's striking to me that in the medical device world that they need to feel like they were in on it early. <laughs> I wish the medical device world were more objective. Uh, there are complex political issues associated with med tech, as you can see even now. Mm. Uh, 
Um, so despite, uh, there are some companies that are successful despite bad clinical results, and there are some companies that are very successful uh, or very unsuccessful despite excellent clinical results. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the difference between them is really, to some extent, uh, partially involved with the luck and relationships that are developed early on. In addition to Robert Parker being a, a, a key person for you in uh, making the public aware of this, you mentioned some sommeliers uh, in New York City were key. First was um, Mario Batali's restaurant, Del Posto, and now Eleven Madison Park uses it. How important was that? It was uh, really, really important. And actually, we're replicating the same thing that we did in the U.S., in France, and in Germany, and in England right now. Um, We would bring together a group of sommeliers uh, at a dinner. Uh, access a, a half a case of a case of a wine. So we'd take half of it and we'd access it and pour it, explain the system to them, wait six months, invite them back to another tasting, have them taste blind uh, to see if they could tell the difference between access and unaccess. This is six months out, some of them nine months out. Number one, it was validation that we functioned, that it worked. Uh, that was really important. And number two, these people are deeply connected in the restaurant scene, in the press. Was there any other key person or pivot point for you that's helped to get the word out? Retail wine stores have been enormously important for our, our success. And they're great. They demonstrate the product. They can pour people wines before they buy. Uh, they can help them to explore regions of wine, to teach them you know, what is an oxidized Italian wine, this type of thing that you would never have experienced before. Now, I have to admit, uh, my husband is a fan, but <laughs> when I first heard of this, I thought, really, do you really need to spend $300 on this device? Like, do we really, does one really need that? Yeah. Um, you have to tell me, what, what's your conclusion? <laughs> I, I, uh, I'll, I'll try to bias you in advance. I think it's, what Coravin is, is not a preservation system. Really, the advantage that Coravin provides, it's a new category. It's wine access. You can drink from any bottle you have at any time. You can serve any bottle you want in a restaurant or at home. You can pair wines. Uh, You can learn six, ten times as fast about wine. And part of the pleasure of wine is its variety and and your understanding. You go into the average wine guy's home with a Coravin or woman's home with a Coravin, and on their counter, they'll have six bottles of wine. And they're drinking across those bottles over the course of a week, uh, trying to learn something. So if, if you reframe uh, the picture from wine preservation to wine access, then it, it really changes the experience of wine drinking. I think so. It, it changes. People have written me long letters where they say, look, you've changed my life. I had this cellar of wine that I wasn't drinking because I didn't know whether or not it was ready. And then all of a sudden, I start to access this wine, and I'm tasting more, sampling more, learning more, understanding more, uh, leaving the cork behind to do its preservation job is a really important thing. How did you get the name Coravin? Coravin was a, a knockdown, drag out naming fight that took us months. Cor is the Latin root for heart and vin, vin from France, uh, wine. So the heart of wine uh, was what we thought and brings in a little bit of my medical background uh, and my love of wine. Your co-founder is Josh Mackauer, a medical doctor. He's, he's on the board of uh, Intrinsic, your medical device company. Josh Mackauer is one of the most extraordinary medical innovators on the planet uh, and an open-minded, optimistic guy who believes that absolutely everything can change. What's an example of some of the devices he's invented? Oh, he developed probably dozens. I think he has six or seven companies running at a time. And one of them was a Clarent. A Clarent uh, was an enormously successful, is an enormously successful company that uh, solved uh, one of the biggest problems in sinus surgery. 
people that have chronic sinusitis uh, from a clogged uh, uh, nasal sinus. Mm -hmm. uh, he developed this way that you can push a balloon up in there, inflate it, open up the sinus, pull it out, and you walk out of the, uh, the, the, the doctor's office feeling better. I love the transfer of technology in general from one industry to a very disparate other industry. Uh, I think that it's always good to have the most open-minded and innocent people involved in the understanding of the problem and the creation of the first new idea. Mm -hmm. Frequently, the best ideas come from people who are outside of the industry because they're not biased. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Greg Lambrecht, co-founder of Coravin, a company that produces a device that allows people to access wine without removing the cork. This allows a person to drink one or two glasses without compromising the remaining wine in the bottle. I, I want to switch gears a little bit. Uh, I want to talk about your medical device profession. You founded two companies. One is called Viacor, which allows subcutaneous cardiac valve replacement. And that company, uh, the intellectual property connected to it was sold to Medtronic in the 90s? Or? Yeah, it was an actually, it's a company of success and failure. It was um, my first med tech company. Uh, my mother has uh, a leaky mitral valve. I tend to work on the problems of my family. Um, and aortic valves, uh, an aortic valve failure uh, is a very quick cause of death. Viacor tried to fix the mitral valve through a small stick in an artery in your leg uh, and a vein in your neck. And this, instead of having a crack chest open heart procedure to fix your mitral valve, we thought we could fix it uh, percutaneously while you're awake. Uh, unfortunately, uh, we had some issues with uh, luck. We had some issues with financing and management. So uh, the company ultimately wasn't successful. But the IP, the, the intellectual property, was sold to Medtronic. It was indeed. And are they using that process now? You know, you find out uh, whether or not they're using it when they contact you for patent extensions. So <laughs> I'm constantly uh, seeing new patents with my name on them from Medtronic. So uh, it makes me happy that they're using it. How many uh, patents do you have? Ooh, I've lost count. Uh, over a hundred. Now you mentioned Viacor uh, just had ill luck. What's an example of that? Um, Aside from uh, management, which was subpar. Raising money is a key skill of a CEO, and our CEO really wasn't terribly skilled at it, but a great, great guy. Um, we had the misfortune of having a, an adverse event right when we were raising money. Mm. Uh, and despite the fact that we may have been better than any other procedure that's out there currently, bad timing can get you. <laughs> so you had tried the procedure and it, it didn't work. In one patient, yeah. A more recent company that you founded is Intrinsic Therapeutics. It's a medical device company focused on spinal disorders. Here, uh, it's connected to a personal experience of your mother who had sciatica. Can you explain what it does and, and how your mom benefited from it's, it? It sounds like I only work on products for my mother. <laughs> um, the most common problem in spine uh, is a herniated disc. Herniated discs compress a nerve that uh, goes down your leg and you feel this shooting pain. You get loss of function in the leg, loss of uh, the ability to lift your toe off the ground, for example. Um, the fundamental problem is that the disc is ruptured. It's like a tire and the stuff on the inside of the tire comes out and compresses the nerves. Uh, we're a very uh, intricate tire patch. You've always had an interest in um, making things and fixing things. Did you as a child, what are some memories as a child just being very hands-on and producing things? I, um, I never really tolerated things that didn't work. 
Uh, I was also very positively influenced by my grandfather, who was a weapons designer during the last century. Uh, and uh, he sort of ignited my interest in making stuff, and the two of us would tear apart a bicycle and then rebuild it uh, together. Um, he was he was really my inspiration. There's a story about him advising you not to make weapons, but to make <laughs> uh, things that were more positive. Can you describe that further? Yeah. Um, my grandfather was an Austrian. He wound up uh, developing one of the first jet engines and then uh, missile guidance systems for uh, Germany during World War II. Uh, he was captured by the Americans in 1944 and uh, was lucky to have been so, as he always told me. Uh, wound up working on uh, missile systems here in the United States, uh, along with many other German scientists. Uh, and he came up to me, I think it was 1981, I was 11 years old, and he said, we've made enough weapons. Uh, you should do something else. Medicine or power. We'll never have enough of either. <laughs> by the by, the way, he was Austrian, so he was on he was on the enemy's side of history. Yeah. How have you reconciled that? Yeah, it's um, I was not involved, obviously, in what went on, um, and it was a terrible, terrible tragedy. And the Germans did some horrible things, uh, as as they know, and as as we know. I think ultimately um, what you try to do is take the best of it. And if I can work in medicine and make people's lives better, if I can work in wine, something that people are really passionate about. I had a surgeon tell me, I understand your career. You make stuff to make to fix us so that we can live longer to enjoy the wine that we really like. And uh, I took that to heart. And so I, I think part of the influence of the negativity of World War II uh, was to try to take my grandfather's experience and really destroying things and turn it into something positive. And this is a man you love, obviously, but, you know, have you have you dealt with that complication? Yeah, and, you know, I think uh, people in World War II uh, walked away from that experience being on the wrong side. Uh, one of two ways, either with, or maybe a combination, terrible guilt or denial um, and when I talked to my grandfather about it, I remember I didn't have long with him. Uh, he felt both. Every country has its uh, epic, disastrous behavior. Um, you know, we had the slave history. Uh, we just need to recover, move on. Luckily, the younger generation seemed much better right, right. Uh, informed. Now, you mentioned you lived in California, but you lived in New York City in the village up until you were 11. Do you have any uh, memories or uh, that, that feature uh, in your in your past about what you're doing now, if anything? Yeah, you know, I think that the the, the difference, if you were to contrast two places in the U.S., two, <laughs> you could pick Newport Beach, California, and Manhattan, um, radically different. So, you know, New York kids uh, go to the museum, right? <laughs> they, they're interested in art and music. Uh, they don't get a whole lot of time on grass. It's a very intellectual world. Uh, and was is, that for you? It was. Uh, and I love that about uh, New York. And then California is about the beach. Uh, it's about cars. It's about uh, how you look and uh, where you live. Uh, and actually, that was very informative as well. I became a big surfer. I, I love it. I loved it out there. And in a way, this contraption is a fusion of those both. It is. And, and uh, you know, art and design uh, have to meet up with purpose and functionality. I personally think that Corbin's a beautiful system. And revelry. Yeah, and uh, joy, that's true. Uh, and there are joys on both coasts. I think they come from different places, but uh, they're on both coasts. Well, thank you very much for joining us. It was really my pleasure. My guest has been Greg Lambrecht, founder of Corvin. Coming up, we'll meet Michael Dubin, co-founder of Dollar Shave Club. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. 
I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Michael Dubin, co-founder of Dollar Shave Club, a membership club for men's grooming products. For less than $10 a month, customers receive products ranging from razors to hair gel. Michael launched Dollar Shave Club in July 2011, and the company grew to $65 million in revenue in roughly two years. Michael graduated from Emory in 2001 and worked in marketing prior to starting Dollar Shave Club. He also did improv comedy at a Bright Citizens Brigade in New York City. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I love that little fact. What was your goal in signing up for those classes? Did you think, oh, I want a career in comedy one day, or it was just sort of for brain flexibility? I had always loved the comedy industry, and you know, I had wanted to study it. I grew up watching Saturday Night Live, and I wanted to know how those guys did it, and I always had a reasonably good sense of humor, so I thought, this sounds like something I'd be interested in, in training in. I spent a lot of money on those classes, but they paid off because it helped me immeasurably uh, with, with Dollar Shave Club, so I'm, I'm grateful for it. So you grew up in Philadelphia. Uh, your mom was a teacher, uh, and then she became a, she worked in real estate as a real estate broker. That's right. And your father is an attorney. What kind of law does he practice? Tax law. I applied to law school you know, during the confused years of my early to mid-20s. I was working at NBC and NBC News at the time, and, and uh, then I had a marketing job that didn't pay a whole lot. And I, you know, I had a father who was like, yeah, you really should be thinking about law school. So I took the LSAT and applied and thankfully didn't get in. So you found yourself at a party in 2011, and <clears throat> you met Mark Levine, and he was the father of a friend's fiance, and you got to talking about shaving. How did the conversation arise? Do you remember it specifically? Yeah, yeah, I do. So Mark was one of these guys who... Uh, had done a lot of business in Asia, and um, you know he was like our our. We had a family friend growing up who would always show up with like a truck full of soccer balls or like a truck full of bikes, and you know he'd honk the horn and we'd come down the driveway and he'd be like, "Hey, you guys need some bikes or soccer balls?" And we'd be like, "Sure, John, we we could use some bikes and soccer balls." Uh, and Mark Mark was one of these guys similar to to our friend John, um, where he just was kind of always buying stuff and and bringing it somewhere else and selling it. And there were a couple things he had in his warehouse. One was uh, some cake slicers that are shaped like an actual wedge of cake. No more fussing around with, you know, a knife and having to make two motions. One fluid motion, wow. cake slice. And, and then he also told me that he had 250,000 uh, twin razor blades uh, that he had uh, un- been unable to sell in, in, uh, in, a, drug, in a drugstore. Um, and he knew that I had experience with the web, and he said, you know, any interest in helping me with any of this stuff? And so, um, you know, I had I had two choices. I had the cake slicers, or I had the razors. And, you know, almost instantly I had the idea for Dollar Shave Club because guys for so long had been, myself included, frustrated with the process of going to the store um, to, to, to buy this stuff. You have to find the locked razor fortress. You got to find the guy or the girl with the key. They're always doing something else. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I just thought there was a, a much better way to, to do it. Where was this party, by the way? Was it in New York? No, it was in Los Angeles. I'd moved to L.A. in 2009. Why did you, by the way, move to L.A. from New York City? Oh, well, uh, I came for a girl and for a job. Huh? And I left the girl and I left the job. You started working out of your apartment selling the razors, and you created a website. Did the customers come? Um yeah, so from 2011 to 2012, we had a beta website where we were testing different 
you know, ways of selling the razors. We had bulk and we had subscription and ultimately, uh, and we had one off. So I ran that site till uh, early 2012 uh, and we filmed the video and that's what kind of brought us into the the modern era. You referred to this video. um, This was a kind of bare bones humor. Thank goodness for Upright Citizens Brigade kind of helping to inspire such comedy. You got help from Lucia Aniello uh, to help you make the video and she is a writer on Broad City and Time Traveling Bong. How much went into this production of the video? The making of this video, which has taken on kind of, you know, lore of its own, is is a major reason for our success. And I have a few I have a few things to thank. You know, one is my time at the Upright Citizens Brigade, where I learned how to really write strong comedy sketch. And um, our video is is you know is essentially a sketch, um, although it's in an ad, it's an advertisement. The other thing I have to thank is that you know my experience there led me to a friendship with Lucia, and Lucia just moved to L.A. Uh, to change her career. And you know I said to her, listen, I I'm I'm starting a company. I need your help. Uh, filming this video, which I want to put on our on our homepage, she said, "Great, we picked a day. I had forty five hundred bucks. That's all I had. We shot it in one day in our original fulfillment center, which is in Gardena, California, just south of the airport." We went for it, and um, you know it turned out okay. Uh, and we sat on that for a few months before we launched it. And so, from that video, all of a sudden, you wake up and there were twelve thousand orders. Uh, were you surprised? Uh, I was I was totally shocked. I mean, this is one of these moments as a founder at a company that you kind of dream will happen, but never actually think will happen. You plan for months and months. You you invest your life savings into something. You think you have a good idea. Everybody tells you you don't. And then you launch this video, and within a matter of two hours, your site has crashed because of traffic. That, to me, was terrifying because in one moment, I thought my wildest dreams had turned into my worst nightmares. And we're very fortunate that we recovered from that moment and that people stuck around and tried again to come to the site and that you know we endured a few days' worth of, of press around it to keep people coming back. Who did you show the video to prior to launching it? Like, what did your parents think of it or Mark or... Yeah, my, you know, I showed it to a few friends who really liked it. I showed it to my, I remember I was skiing with my family the weekend before we launched the video and I showed it to them and uh, they looked at it and they were like, yeah, that's a, it's not bad. Tax attorney. Yeah. No, my dad has a great sense of humor. So does my mom. So does my sister. We're all we're all funny people. But, you know, for some reason, this video, I mean, I got maybe a, a snort mm-hmm. or two. Mm-hmm. Not, not encouraging for somebody who just spent the last year and change working on this project and was about to kind of go big. Yeah. How did you launch it? Do you just, like, put it up there and hope that people come? Or was there something behind getting the viewers? So we had raised a million dollars in seed capital from investors. And we strategically timed the announcement of the funding uh, with the relaunch of the website with the launch of the video. And we did that at a time of year when people are waiting for a technology story, which is to say right before South by Southwest. There's a little bit of a quiet period before every, you know eyes are on Austin. I think the festival started on the 7th or the 8th, and uh, we launched this on the 6th, and all the media that covered... Um, 
the launch used the video to tell the story. So it went from the tech press to the mainstream press. Hmm. Before you raised a million dollars, you had raised like $100,000 from one investor in Los Angeles. Who was that? Yeah, the group is called Science. Um, they're, they're an investor based in Santa Monica. Mm-hmm. And when they wrote out the check, uh, they wrote me a $100 check by accident instead of a $100,000 check, which for anybody that knows the folks over at Science, uh, you know that that has special special <laughs> meaning and humor. <laughs> and then you went on to raise capital from Andreessen Horowitz and Forerunner and Kleiner Perkins and Venrock. Talk to me about your first couple customers. Do you remember who they were? Yes. Um, I, remember our, I remember that in the early version... I'll never forget my first customer's name. His name was Imran Charnania from Houston, Texas. Um, I don't know what happened to him. I should look up and see if he's still a member. Uh, but but good old Imran Charnania uh, was the first customer of Dollar Shave Club. I mean, that validation is gold. There's nothing, there's no money, amount of money that's going to make you feel as good as somebody else with a real brain and a real pocketbook saying yes to your idea. I mean, that feeling is, is uh, you know, irreplaceable. I want to talk about uh, the second video that you launched, which was video number two, in which uh, one wipe Charlie's feature prominently, uh, which is just basically, you know, wipes for men's butts. Did you get that idea because so many people were asking for number two? Or what was the chicken and the egg there? Well, Yes, thank you for the very polite way of saying wipes for men's butts. Mm. Um, men are using wipes, and they're just not talking about it. Uh, and that's not just men with kids. I was using wipes back in college because a friend turned me on to it, and it was a much more pleasant, comfortable way to solve the problem. If Dollar Shave Club is, is successful at anything, it's, it's uh, speaking with a relatable voice to our to our members and getting them to change their behavior around their grooming. And, you know, we sell thousands of these things a day. Yeah. I have people that come up to me in airports and tell me how it's changed their life. I had a guy stop his conference call in an airport, open his backpack, and show me that he was carrying our travel wipes. And I had a guy in a hot tub uh, come up to me, swim up to me uh, in, in Hawaii and say, Sorry to bother you. I just have to tell you, I'm a huge fan of these One Wipe Charlies. My girlfriend actually made me buy them because she says I wasn't doing a good enough job. Wow. Okay. And, and so, you know, I feel like, I feel like, you know, uh, I mean, I'm not a doctor, but I now I know what doctors kind of go through when... When a doctor tells somebody that they're a doctor, they get all kinds of, like, unsolicited information. That That's kind of what happens to me now. <laughs> Uh, so men's grooming, uh, it seems like there's um, that men are taking more ownership over their aesthetic life. Why do you think that is? Well, without trying to sound too pitchy, mm-hmm. I, I will I will tell you that you know it's our belief that men are sort of evolving emotionally and physically as it relates to this category. You know, the United States is is behind Asia and Europe in in sort of the sophisticated nature of of men's grooming. Uh, There there have been guys that, you know, are kind of your standard, you know, Pert Plus Irish Spring guys, just to pick on two kind of legacy brands. You know, they just kind of grab whatever's there. To them, soap is soap. And then there's a lot of guys who are very proud to say, yeah, you know what? I'm I'm thinking very critically about the ingredients that go into my daily face moisturizer with SPF. So you got to get guys all over the map. My son, who's five the other day, started uh, using gel in his hair. So we bought him like dippity do. And it was striking to me that he doesn't have any cultural influence, but that was just an innate uh, interest in mm. making sure his hair looked good. Yeah. 
Yeah. Do you use gel in your hair? I don't use gel. Uh, I use uh, our our cream, our hair cream. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Michael Dubin, co-founder of Dollar Shave Club, an e-commerce mail order company for men's grooming products. The company started off by selling razors for a few dollars per month in 2011 and now offers products ranging from hair cream to body cleanser. I noticed that a lot of companies that have launched lately also are, have a similar tongue-in-cheek humor. <clears throat> I'm not sure that's, that's the best description, but I think of like Sir Kensington's ketchup, right? Uh, or even Oscar Health or your company. They all have like this pared-down humor to them that really resembles each other. Do you get that sense that like in our culture, there's some type of, there's an appreciation for a certain type of humor that, you know, 50 years ago, if you were launching, it wouldn't have resonated as much. Yeah, I think we as a culture are much more comfortable with humor and pushing the boundaries of humor. We also recognize the importance uh, of, uh, of, of speaking you know, like a peer to customers, um, you know, and not kind of down to customers. And so companies have gotten much more familiar in their language and their approach. You know, razors at this point are essentially a commodity. I think about what Dollar Shave Club is doing uh, very much like what Starbucks did for coffee. So remember what there was before coffee. Mm-hmm. There, or sorry, before before coffee, there was darkness, just a black hole in the universe. Um, but before Starbucks, you know, what were you drinking? Folgers, Maxwell House. Uh, it was, you know, relatively unexciting and functional. And then, you know, Howard Schultz came along and said, wait a second, this is a moment in your life that is to be celebrated. Uh, it's a ritual. And it's something that's um, that deserves a culture. It's all its own. You know, Dollar Shave Club is doing the same thing with the razor commodity and with its men's grooming products. We're saying that this is a really important part of your life that needs to be celebrated and deserves a culture all its own. So when people ask us, are you a, are you a razor company? Or are you a, a men's grooming company? I say, actually, no, we're an experience company. And it starts the moment you see an advertisement and it continues every month that you get a shipment from us. What has been harder for you than you thought in all of this? You know, scaling a company to 200 employees is a very big challenge. It's very easy for you when you're a small company and there's six people in a room or 25 people in a room. But when you when you scale to 175, 200 people, and there are many layers to the organization, your bad habits, um, you know, you don't get away with your bad habits as well. And you really have to put in process. And, and this is not a journey that's unique to Dollar Shave Club. Anybody that's gone from zero to 200 or beyond has been through this. And that, that was uh, harder than I expected. What do your parents make of all this, the, hmm. the teacher and the tax attorney? At first, they didn't really believe what was happening because they saw the video. They didn't think it was very funny, and they were kind of taken aback and blindsided by the sudden spotlight on their on their son. Slowly, they kind of got used to the fact that we were doing something disruptive and something that was worth kind of looking at. And... Um, you know, now they're now they're they're thrilled. I mean, they're they're super proud. How would your parents describe you? Well, so when I was a kid, I they gave me this nickname called the Blitherer uh, because I would sort of blither on, and I think they meant blither lovingly. I don't even know if blither is a real word, is it? You know, people might describe me as a blitherer now too. Well, that's hi- ironic because in the videos that I've seen, there's real economy to your writing. I think that's the that's what good writing is all about. Um, you know, someone once said, maybe it was Mark Twain, I wrote you a long letter because I didn't have time to write a short one. 
Can you tell me just briefly about your own grooming regimen? E- Why, yes. My own grooming regimen begins it- in the morning when I get into the shower and I, I'll wash my hair and then I'll wash my body. Then I'll get out of the shower and if it's uh, one particular day, I'll shave. Um, after I'm done shaving, I'll put on a daily face moisturizer with SPF. And um, when I'm done, uh, maybe I'll maybe I'll sit down on the toilet and use some one wipe Charlies. And you know, sometimes I'll snip my eyebrows if I have to. Mm-hmm. I once saw this barber do something really cool, like cut my ear hair with a with a th- with a a string, like a knitting string. Have you seen this? Oh yes, women do it. Oh for my their, god, for their brows. Oh my god, it's mm-hmm. an amazing trick. Yes. How do I? I mean, there must be a web video I can watch on how to do that. What might I not know about you? I make really good homemade popcorn. Why is it? Why is it so good? Yeah, what makes it? Well, I don't make microwave. It's popcorn. a commodity. It is a commodity because I build an experience around it. <laughs> um, it's my way of saying don't make microwave popcorn. What else? Uh, let's see. When I first moved to California, I I had an apartment that was near the beach, and I would see all these sailboats go by, and I never learned how to sail a boat. So I I took a couple classes, and now I'm a licensed sailor. Has there been um, you know one or two people who have been kind of unlikely allies for you that have really helped to transform, like accelerate the trajectory of things? What's really rewarding and fun is when you meet. Uh, reputable sort of even famous people that are members of Dollar Shave Club and you're like whoa Mm. that's really interesting like you know this person's a member Mm. and and they're like going out of their way to tell me how much they love the club and that's like really cool I had this idea in my apartment for example um, well, I don't know. Well, I don't know. Breaching privacy. Yeah, I don't know if I. I don't know yeah. if if I'm allowed to do that. I, I'll tell you what's the reverse. It was a super bummery. Is like you know, with 3.1 million members, like members of ours have definitely died. Mm. And that's like something that I just actually was thinking about the other day. Yep. Like, how do you end the accounts? Well, they stop paying, and then you find out that they've died. Usually, someone will reach out and say. Oh. Um, you know, I mean, this is it's a pretty morose topic, but you know, it's, it is something to think about. Like somebody that saw a commercial, signed up, enjoyed the club for a time, has now moved on to the great club in the sky or the great, the great kind of underground club. There's different I'm clubs you... that you go to after. Look, death is for for all the listeners out there. It's it awaits us all. Well, you could turn it into an experience. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Well, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. My guest has been Michael Dubin, co-founder of Dollar Shave Club. If you would like to learn more about the show, please visit our website at fromscratchradio.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Jess G. Harris or find us on Facebook. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. From Scratch.